Welcome to a special edition of the Captain's Meeting with Ken Tyler. We are honored today to have a special session with Mr. Alan Walsh. It's, it's an exception because it is not a Captain's Meeting, but I, it was something I absolutely wanted to do when Earl the Pearl got in touch with me and said Alan had reached out and said hi and wanted to reconnect. This former McGill Puckstopper has had an extraordinary life and you can hear the reasons why as you listen to his story. From becoming one of the youngest ever L.A. prosecutors who pursued cases even the most arduous prosecutors had avoided, some of the toughest cases in L.A. history, and all of this in his mid-twenties, to how he willed his way to the top once again as he switched midstream and returned to his true passion, ice hockey, and built one of the most successful sport agencies in the world. I couldn't resist the stories and I'm sure you won't either. I couldn't bring myself to cut out any part of what turned out to be an absolutely intriguing and well-narrated story. So do find the time to get to know Mr. Alan Walsh in his own words. Settle down with a warm coffee and enjoy the story of a very successful Redmond who followed his dreams and made dreams come true for others on his way. Alan Walsh. We haven't seen each other since 1998. It was probably right around that time. You were sitting with Bill Gilligan in the VIP room in the in the uh, World Championships in Zurich. And I saw Billy and I didn't see you. So I came up to talk with him. He's an old friend. And instead of him stepping up and giving him a big hug, it was you. And I said, who are <laughs> Who's this guy? I didn't recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> So we oh, had I have a little, I have a little less hair even then <laughs> that I did back in the uh, early to mid eighties, but someone had said in the circle where I was talking in between periods, Ken Tyler. And I said, Ken Tyler, yeah. the former head coach at McGill university. And he said, yeah. And I said, what about Ken Tyler? He said, he's sitting right over there. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. And I walked over to me, you look the same. And it was just uh, so great to see you there and such a, a great surprise. I remember being stunned that here we were in Zurich in the rink, exactly. meeting up by happenstance and uh, talking together. And I, I remember giving you a big hug. Yeah. And uh, the, the, one thing <laughs> that I, the one thing that I've never told you, and, and you, you probably hear this a lot later on in, in life, is what a, a profound impact you had on my life and on my career. Wow. Thank you. Do tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I just vividly recall having some, some really in-depth conversations with you in your office, in the, in the gym building. And uh, you, you, you were honest. You were direct but you also were never in a rush and there was a, a lot of uh, knowledge and education you had uh to pass on to very impressionable 20 21 22 year old young men and i remember vividly the atmosphere around the team the, the team wasn't very good you ran it very much like a military unit, especially during <laughs> training camp. Uh, 
but uh, there was a a lot of respect going towards you. And it it was really around that period of time at McGill where I was uh, majoring in political science. Mm -hmm. I was really thriving. I felt like I was thriving for the first time in my life where I was Mm -hmm. in a place that was where I was able to pursue my passions and start to think about going to law school and Mm -hmm. start to think a little bit about life beyond just being a student. That's a great story. We want to dig in more. I'll tell you a little bit on the other side in terms of feeding back the military approach to my coaching at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Fast forward years past, and you must have played with him uh, in the first year or two. There is overlap, I'm pretty sure. Mike Babcock, who you'll know from your lifetime now, and so Mike played with us as well at the international conference when Austria was hosting the world championships about maybe 2005. And he, the guy who was running it was a guy that I used to coach. He's the national basketball coach of Austria. And I used to coach him and his team, but from a sports psychology perspective. Okay. And uh, so he set it up. Uh, uh, the other Mike, Michel, uh, uh, was was presenting and Mike came up. Mike Babcock came up and said, that's really, really good stuff. Where did you get it? And so Mickey, we called him, he knew that Mike had been my student, my captain. He said, well, you must know all that. I got all this directly from Ken Tyler. This is all the stuff he did with me. And they'd won four (laughs) national championships in a row. And he said, no, Ken Tyler, he was a slave driver. He never did this stuff. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I can imagine the boys just cursing me, doing the leg pops, going around the rink. And (laughs) I'm playing one leg, one legged football down in the football field and stuff like that. So. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, the the what I vividly recall is my first training camp. There was you know, four weeks, five weeks, all off ice work yeah. on the track uh, behind the uh, Arthur Curry gym uh, before we ever hit the ice. Yeah. And I remember one of the other players, it was the day before we were finally going to hit the ice. And we were talking about training camp and how hard it was. And really, it was the most difficult thing I'd ever been through physically in my life. And uh, he looked at me from the corner of his eyes and he says, all you needed to do was survive and you survived. And I looked at him back and I said, barely. (laughs) (laughs) You recall who that was? It was Earl Morris. Oh, Earl. Yeah. I'm still in touch with him, too. He's had yeah. a very nice career, and he actually captained the Canadian team that went over to the games in uh, in Israel. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Very proud of what he's done in his life. So, yeah, that's great stuff. So, tell me though, what years were you there? So, I mean, not everybody who's listening will know. Firstly, that you're a McGillian, okay, and then secondly, they don't know what got you to McGill and what uh, what you did at McGill. Well, you got poli sci. That part I got. That was a part of my first degree too, by the way. <clears throat> So, but what else did you do and how did you end up getting towards, what'd you do? What'd you do with hockey? What'd you do with school? Where'd you come from? Go so ahead. I was, I was, I was born and raised in Chamonix Laval and, and I played uh, minor hockey all through Pee Wee Bantam midget. And then I went and played one year at Dawson college. And that would have been yeah. uh, 82, 83 at the time they had the CJEP AAA league. Yeah. And it was a somewhat temporary feeder 
for kids who wanted to go to the United States and yeah. study and play hockey there. And it was when I got to Dawson that my eyes really got opened up about some of the opportunities that could exist in the U.S. And uh, University of Illinois had a new Division I program. I ended up going there for a year after one year of Dawson. So that would have been 83, uh, 84. I was at Illinois. Mm. It was a Division I team. And it was at that point that I realized I was at the highest level I was ever going to be able to play as a hockey player. You know, because really up until 18, 19 years of age, like most kids growing up in Canada, especially Montreal, I was hockey obsessed from the time yeah. I was five, six years old. I used to, my dad used to go on business trips uh, a lot, places, the Maritimes, Hamilton, um, West Coast. And on every business trip, he came back with a book on hockey. Oh my. And, and I was eight years old, nine years old, 10 yeah. years old. My dad would come in the door. I would race to the door, grab the book, run to my bedroom, and I wouldn't come out until I had read the book cover to cover. Yeah. And I still have many of those books here today at my house. And, and my own son has read some of them. Uh, Stan Fischler's Hockey Greatest Rivalries. Yeah. Jacques Plante wrote a book on goaltending in the yeah. 70s that yeah. was a Bible for goalies back then. Ken Dryden wrote a book with Mark Mulvoy. Uh, face off at the summit, his experiences in the 90, 1972 Two, yeah. summit series. And I would soak all of that up. And, and really, I was a voracious reader. But the only thing I really wanted to read about was hockey. Yeah, there you and, go. <laughs> and, 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 and probably by 18, I had a personal library of probably 300 hockey books. Oh, my. That's amazing. <clears throat> My, my dad had found a book that was written about the Montreal Maroons. It was literally yellowed. It was a used book. And uh, I, I remember reading through it. And my dad was a huge hockey fan. He was born in Montreal in 1923. He actually saw Howie Moran's play. Amazing. Um, talked about going to the Montreal Forum yeah. and uh, sitting in the, in the cheap seats behind a cage in the upper deck where he used to yeah. pay 50 cents to watch Rocket Richard, Toe Blake, uh, Elmer Locke play. I used to just love to hear those stories and I was just enamored yeah. with it. Yeah. yeah. So getting back to my uh, great uh, team tra travails here. Yeah. I'm well, but hang on a second. You haven't okay. told us what position you played. Okay. I was a goalie. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted that to come out of your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> And, and as I say to many people, it uh, explains a lot about me right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one just yet. We've got to get a few more stories out of you first. <laughs> uh, so one year in Chicago at, at Illinois, yeah. and uh, there, there was one thing there that really disappointed me. At the first day of practice, there's probably 45, 50 kids in the room. And the head coach, um, who I'm not going to name, stood up and he wrote on the blackboard behind him, NCAA championship, and he underlined it twice. 
And he said, let's not fool each other anymore. We're not here to go to school. We're not here to get degrees. I want everybody in physical education. We've got that wired. You're here for one thing and one thing only, and that's to get me an NCAA championship. I, I, I looked at everybody sitting there in the room and everybody was nodding their head up and down. And I remember thinking to myself at that very moment, uh, this is my one and only year here. I yeah. hear you. I hear you. So ya. It, it, it was sometime in February of 80, of 84 that I would have uh, picked up, let's see, 82, 80, 82, 83, 83. Yeah, it would be like February 84. I picked up the phone and I called you. And I said, uh, hi, Coach Tyler, it's Alan Walsh. I'm calling you from Chicago. I'm at University of Illinois. I'm born and raised Montreal. I want to come back to Montreal. I'd like to transfer to McGill University. And I would love to play hockey for you. And uh, we had a couple of really nice conversations on the phone. I filled out the application to McGill. The transfer application was accepted. And, uh, and that brought me to McGill University. And then you'd have to have redshirted for a year, right? I didn't because I didn't play in a regular season game with Illinois. I played a couple of exhibition games. I played in a couple of tournaments. Okay. I never played a regular season game. I may have skirted under that. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's what, that's a treat. That, but you had one year university and then you can't, you had to transfer your credits over and you went yes. into, poli, you had, you went into poli sci. I went into political science yeah. uh, at McGill. I, I've had really two loves of my life beyond my wife and family. And, <laughs> and one of them is hockey. Yeah. And the other one is politics, studying politics and political science, history, current events. I'm somewhat known as a bit of a political junkie. <laughs> okay. Well, you've got lots to, uh, to digest <laughs> these days, I can say. <laughs> okay. So then you played for, the, for McGill for, what, 84, 85, 85, 86 I, I, pl I played for two years, uh, the first year on the JV team. And then it was around December when you gave me a call and you said, uh, hey, Alan, uh, we have a goalie that's not available and we're going to Lake Placid to play in a tournament. I think it was the Key Bank College Hockey Classic. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'd like you to come with the team. So it was right over the Christmas break. And I said, no problem, done. <laughs> and, uh, and, and went with the big team to Lake Placid. Yeah. I remember we were playing in the, uh, in the big rink there, the Miracle on Ice rink. Yeah, the Miracle on Ice rink. Yeah. Yep, and living in the dorms, uh, yeah. Olympic Village, I believe. And, uh, and one thing was really interesting on that trip. Uh, well, two things, actually. We played against Cornell. And Joe, Joe Neuendijk was on that was team. Was playing, yeah. Yes. And uh, I remember watching him come down the ice thinking, wow, he's, he's going to play in the NHL soon. And, yeah. uh, and, and uh, he played the next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then on the way back from Lake Placid, 
you had arranged a surprise for the team, a very wealthy guy from Montreal oh, who had this massive house. Yeah, on the top of the mountain. On the top of the mountain yeah. with a full-on waterfall yeah. and a, um, a lazy river inside his house. Yep, George Petty. George Petty. Yep. <laughs> and he was in the pulp and paper business. Yep. Repap was the name of his company. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, we, I remember the bus going through the woods and uh, we pulled up in front of his house and none of us knew really what we were going into and what it was going to be like. And uh, within 10 minutes, everybody stripped down to their underwear because <laughs> nobody had any bathing suit. trunks, yeah, right? Yeah. And we're all going through the waterfall and going down the slides and going through the lazy river through the yeah. living room, which is something we've never seen before. Yeah. It was truly an outstanding property. Uh, absolutely outstanding. And, and they were both great hosts. Ginger also hosted us for Christmas I guess right after that trip or the year after, I can't remember which, but they were, they were fantastic. They, they were key to us still having hockey at McGill because they came in, they sat down with the, with the president at the time, uh, David Johnson, who yep. ultimately was our uh, governor general. And between the two of, two of them, they cooked up a deal to get a chair in entrepreneurship uh, and, and also then to finance a contract for me at McGill. That's how I ended up being full-time. Uh, wow. So, yeah, he was a key, key benefactor for hockey, and he was a key reason why uh, we were able to keep the hockey alive and turn it into a full-time coaching position. That was quite a place. Yeah, so I remember standing up at the top of the water slide with uh, Mike Babcock, both of us in our underwear, and uh, <laughs> and, and he, he turns and looks at me and he goes, not bad, eh, Walshy? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's an amazing story. <laughs> you can see everywhere from around there, though. They, they, they Ginger talked to me about uh, why they chose and how long it took for them to find that property. They wanted to have that 360 degree view from their bedroom. It was spectacular. Absolutely yeah. spectacular. At the yeah. time, I had never been in a house like that before. I mean, a, a waterfall, a water slide, and a lazy river going right through the house. Yeah. And do you recall, they went into the where the, where the beer was and into the <laughs> fridges and whatnot. They had all of those uh, industrial size uh, uh, refrigerators that were basically wall to wall because of their entertaining that they did there. It was, yep. it, it was an amazing kitchen and an amazing beer fridge. I mean, I, we could have camped there for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so, so the, yeah. So that was just some of the experiences that you know, 38 years later that uh, still stayed with me to this yeah. day. Uh, those are amazing. They stay with me too, to tell you the truth, because they were uh, <laughs> they were very significant. They were very significant in both of our lives. Yeah. And so, how long did it take before you graduated? The normal track in Quebec is two years CJEP and then yep. three years of university. Right. I did a one year of CJEP, one year of your university in the United States, and then three years at McGill. So really my one year at University of Illinois was like my second year CJEP. And then I did three years at McGill. I think by um, after my second year at McGill, I had uh, come to the realization that uh, I, I wasn't good enough to be 
a starting goalie. And it was, I was already focused on law school and getting into law school and taking the LSAT. And it was just, everybody comes to that point where it's time to stop playing. And that's the time where I stopped. And my last year at McGill really focused on getting the best grades and preparing myself to go to law school. And there's a number of guys that have done that too, I must say. Not everybody goes through and has a glorious five years. Well, some of them do, and many more do now, actually. But uh, they have a glorious five years. A lot of them go through, and then they get more serious about where they want to get to. And and they say, well, I've got to cut down and focus on it. Okay. And so now that's the uh, school side. What about the the family side? Okay. So when I came back to Montreal to to start at McGill, uh, my parents had divorced when I was 12 years old. Um, my dad lived in Cote St. Luke, uh, on his own. And my dad was my mentor, uh, mm. my best friend. Uh, and really it was a joy living with him. And, and I lived at home, so to speak with him for my entire three years at McGill. Nice. So I commuted, I commuted downtown every day from, from Cote St. Luke. And I vividly recall writing term papers, till three, four o'clock in the morning and uh, going off to sleep and leaving the term paper on the kitchen table. And uh, um, I'd, I'd get up in the morning, early morning, and my, my dad would be sitting there with his cup of coffee, reading the term paper. And it was never, it was never in an uh, obtrusive way. It was always lending support and encouragement and he would be reading it and going, wow, this is so good. I love reading this. He'd get on the phone and call my aunts and get them on the phone and insist on holding them hostage, reading them, you know, <laughs> two or three pages from it. And, and, and really, that was great motivation for, for a young guy. I'd been living with my dad alone since I was you know, 12, 13 years of age. Mm-hmm. And, and really a, a, a great measure of any success I've had in my life, I can trace back directly to his love, his support, his encouragement, whatever I dreamed about. And I was a dreamer. He would be the guy to say, you can do it. You know, no yeah. dream, no dream is crazy, too crazy for you. You can do anything. Seeing somebody believe in you to that extent, really, really for somebody, you know, young, embarking on the world, you know, not afraid to take an adventure, not afraid to get up and move to another city. He gave me that uh, foundational support that without it, he he just reveled in any uh, measure of, of success to the point of, almost uh, an over-exaggeration of of something that you've accomplished. But to him, it was the entire world. And Mm. it was him believing in me and instilling in me a foundation of you can do anything. There isn't anything you can't do. Dream big. You know, don't be afraid to take risks. And, and I was always somebody who had a sense of adventure. I was never hesitate to, 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 to move to another city or to, to go to school in, in somewhere away from home. Uh, and it was that, that support, the, the passion that he had and his support for me and belief in me that really, I believe, laid 
the groundwork for everything mm -hmm. that I did later on in life. I can see that and that built a, a one heck of a foundation for your own self-confidence, your ambitions and your motivations and your, your sense of self-worth must be a very endearing uh, relationship that you've had with your dad. You know, he, my dad passed uh, in 2010 yeah. and, uh, and he was, you know, when I, when I first got into the agent business and started representing players, I wasn't known in the industry I didn't have really much of any contacts in the industry. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people who said at the time, you know, you don't have any chance of being successful here. You don't know anybody. You don't represent any players. Um, how are you going to get clients? And uh, it was my dad who sat with me and said, don't listen to these people. Don't listen to them. You can do it. Put yourself out there. If, if this is what you want, go for it. Yeah. And uh, he, without him, I may never have um, made the decision to do what I, I decided at the time. Because you were having a heck of a career as a lawyer already. Well, after what, what happened was I had gone to law school with the idea of working in some way in the hockey business. Okay. And, and, and I didn't know... Uh, really much about being an agent. Mm -hmm. And I was not focused on that. But I knew that I wanted to work in hockey. I never aspired to work in a law firm. I wanted to get my law degree and work somehow in hockey. And in my third year of law school, I'm sitting in class waiting for the professor to come and start the lecture when uh, a, a good friend of mine sits down next to me and he says, uh, hey, did you uh, sign up? I said, sign up for what? He said, oh, the district attorney's office has a sign-up sheet out mm. uh, and you can sign up for uh, an internship. You better, go, you better go and sign your name quick because they go fast. So mm. I didn't really know what I was doing. I ran out of class, uh, the classroom and put my name down there were 15 places and I was the 14th name on the list. Signed my name and a week later, I'm sitting in the district attorney's office with uh, 15 of my other classmates. And here's the, the system in California. It's fairly unique. If you've completed two years of law school, you can appear in court as long as you have a licensed attorney sitting next to you. So I've completed two years of law school. I was assigned to a felony preliminary hearing unit and we would be going down to court every single day and we would be doing between 10 and 15 preliminary hearings, which is the process is a crime is committed, there's an investigation, uh, there's an arrest, Charges are filed. There's an arraignment where the defendant pleads guilty or not guilty. And then there's a preliminary hearing where the people of the state of California, the DA's office, has to put on evidence before a judge showing there's probable cause that this crime was committed and holding it over to trial. Mm -hmm. It's similar to an indictment. Yeah, You can actually proceed by indictment or preliminary hearing. So in California, the normal way of moving forward 
from filing a criminal case to getting it into superior court for trial is by preliminary hearing. And uh, I went down with the lawyer I was assigned to, the prosecutor, and watched him do preliminary hearings for one week. And uh, then he said to me, uh, so kid, you, uh, <laughs> you, you, get how, you get how we do this? I said, uh, what do you mean? He says, well, you're going to do it from now on. And uh, I would literally have, you know, 10 to 15 files, barely be able to carry him down to the courtroom. He had the LA Times under his arm. He would sit down at council table next to me. He'd been in the office for 30 years and was just marking time to retirement. He's probably done 10,000 preliminary hearings in his life and had no interest to do another one. And he would open up the LA Times and start reading and I would run the calendar in the court. Amazing. And I'm only in, and I'm only in my third year of law school. So I was doing preliminary hearings on robbery cases, assault with deadly weapons, um, attempted murder, uh, possession for sale of narcotics and, and, and burglaries. And, and some of them were really serious cases. And, I, and I, I probably did in my third year of law school, uh, I, I would say probably between 300 and 400 preliminary hearings before a judge. And yeah. uh, it, was, it was great experience. Mm. I became enamored with the idea of becoming a full-time prosecutor and uh, my interest in working in hockey at that time waned. And all I wanted was to uh, finish law school, pass the bar in California and become a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Uh, I was, I, I, I wrote, you write the bar in July after graduating in May, you get your bar results Thanksgiving weekend in November. Mm. And uh, seven days later, I was sworn in as an attorney sworn in as a district attorney and a couple of days later was trying my first felony jury trial. And then uh, I was, a, I was a person who, you know, I quickly realized that there were certain cases languishing that no one wanted to try because either there were issues with witnesses or issues with the investigation and the files were gathering dust, so to speak. They were coming up for trial. And the original DA assigned to that case really didn't want to take it to trial. I would go around and grab those cases and say, I'll try it. And I went in many, many situations, literally reinvestigated the case, um, got my LAPD or sheriff's department detective mm -hmm. reinterested in the case and and would take it to trial and and had some success there was a, a elite unit in the da's office called the hardcore gang division where the only cases the unit handled were gang involved homicides my, my, my. i wanted into that unit you, you needed to be one of the requirements of getting into that unit you needed to be an attorney for a minimum of five years and you needed to be a district attorney for a minimum of seven years and you needed to have tried a minimum of 10 murder cases. I want to catch your age at that time because I'm suspecting you're pretty darn young too. I'm 25 years exactly. old at the time. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and I had tried one murder case. I had been a, a deputy DA for one year and I applied into an, a, an open spot in that unit. And I, I went and interviewed with the head deputy who'd been running Hardcore Gang since it was created. And he looked at me and he said, you don't have the years of an attorney to meet our requirements. You haven't tried enough murder cases. You haven't been in the office long enough. Why should I put you into this unit? How can you convince me that you're ready? And I said, all I can tell you, sir, is that if you give me this chance, I'll never let you down. And he looked at me and he said, all right, kid, uh, you're in. He says, don't let me down. I'm taking a chance on you. He read a deep trust in the way you said that. And then your eyes, as you looked at him, he had to have. I figured when I went in there that I wasn't going to, at at that time, uh, get into the unit. So I was just going to be honest with him and tell him that there's other people here with more experience. There's other people here older. But if you gave me an opportunity, I'll do everything I can to do my job and make you proud. I was the, at the time, I don't know about right now, but at the time, I was the youngest prosecutor in the history of the state of California to try a gang murder case. And I tried 40 gang murder cases between the age of 25 and the age of 29 years of age. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. And you know, what was, what was interesting about that period of time, uh, number one, gang, and, gang violence was, was a huge yes. social issue in Los Angeles yes. at the time. It was spiraling out of control. There were deep budget cuts to the DA's office, and there was a hiring freeze. There were attrition. Many older DAs were retiring and, 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 and taking early retirement with packages. Uh, the numbers in the office was reduced, of prosecutors was reduced by, by 20%. And even in the gang unit, I was trying a case, a murder case, doing closing argument to the jury. And then in the courtroom next door, I was involved in jury selection, picking a jury on another murder case while the previous case, the jury was deliberating still. Mm -hmm. And we used to have to pause jury selection for me to go back to the original courtroom to take a verdict and then go back and, and try that case. And it was one after the other, after the other. And after doing that for four, four and a half years, I really started feeling somewhat dehumanized. Yeah. I I was someone who really identified with the victims of crime. I was very outraged by by some of the crimes that I had seen take place. Mm -hmm. I was very touched by the tragedies that um, impacted victims' families. And it takes an emotional toll on you. It does. I I had seen some horrific things. I had tried a case where a uh, 16-month-old child was shot and killed in her father's arms, leaving a church in a gang drive-by shooting. Um, I did a case where a small businessman, grocer in a uh, African-American neighborhood was killed uh, by a shotgun 
behind the cash register in front of his wife and died in the store. I, I tried a case where a 18-year-old high school honor student was uh, killed by two gang members in the alleyway of a boys and girls club in Whittier, California. And, and all of those cases together, you know, I always said that if you, if you try a murder case the right way, you have to give a little piece of your soul to the case. And you only have so many pieces to give away. It must really be emotionally draining. And you add on the intensity level at which you were working, you had to be going at a high pace and a high pitch. There were, there were many times where I would have a file, a, a murder case, given to me two or three days before jury selection. And the investigating officers haven't had any contact with the witnesses for eight months, 10 months. Sometimes you only had a photograph or a first name. And I would literally jump into the police car and we'd be out all night searching for our witnesses, going to last known residents, talking to, you know, a mom and dad, you know, do you know where your son or daughter is? Finding people in the dead of night and, and getting them re-subpoenaed and, and getting them prepared to come to court and testify. It, it was at 25, 26, 27 years of age, I, I reveled in every minute of it. But I also came to the realization, probably when I was around 27, 28 years of age, that I was not going to do this as my life's work. And I started thinking about and looking at hockey again as something that I would like to work in as an industry long-term. But that was one heck of a life experience that had to really have formed you in a very uh, important part of your, your life, meaning the, the dynamic 20s, where there's tons of energy, tons of youth and exuberance. That's probably what brought you through with the pace at which you're working and the, and the caseload that you had. But I can tell, I can tell that you're, the opportunity, you got to get into that, the opportunity to shift into something that you absolutely loved, which has a completely different aura around it, had to have been a, a wondrous miracle for that to go. And yet there is still a huge amount of risk for you taking that, as I understand it. Well... I got to the point where I had so much overtime built up in the DA's office, they mandated that if you didn't take your overtime and get it down to a certain level, you would lose it. My head deputy came in to my office and said, you've got more overtime built up than anybody else here. We've got to get your hours down. So for the next little while, why don't you try a case and then take two weeks off? Hey, mm -hmm. so I would, uh, in my last year in the DA's office, I would try a case, get a, a cheap, cheap Air Canada flight from LA to Montreal, fly back to Montreal and hang out with my dad for two weeks. Uh -huh. what, what years are we talking there? We're talking 1994. And one night, my dad and I are having dinner at Moishe's Steakhouse on uh -huh. Boulevard Saint Laurent, in Montreal. Yeah. And he said to me, uh, you know, so Alan, what are you thinking? Are you, are you going to stay in the DA's office long term? Or are you uh, thinking about doing something else? And I said, you know what, dad, I've been reading a lot about 
the sports agent business. I read a few books written by agents. I read a few books regarding the uh, changing industries of, of the different professional sports, the evolution of sports labor unions, and uh, the impact agents were having on the game. And I said, I think, you know, working with young players, mentoring them, representing them, I, I think that's something I can be very passionate about. I, I then was introduced, reintroduced to a journalist in Montreal, and I met him uh, for a beer at Grumpy's on Bishop Street. And uh, and he see, we had a nice talk, and I told him that I was interested in becoming a sports agent and representing hockey players. And he said, if that's what you want to do, give my pal David Shadia a call. David was one of the biggest agents in the 1970s, represented a whole bunch of players. He's a big, uh, big lawyer here in Montreal now. Give him a call and tell him I sent you. So I, I went home from that meeting and I opened up the Montreal telephone book. Remember those? Yep. Yeah. And uh, and looked up the name David Shadia and called his law office and uh, left a message. Uh, Hi, Mr. Shadia. My name's uh, Alan Walsh. I'm a lawyer from, L from L.A., uh, working as a prosecutor, born and raised in Montreal. I'm a McGill graduate. He was a McGill graduate, both for his uh, Bachelor of Arts degree and law degree. And I, I'm interested in, in becoming a sports agent. This journalist uh, said I should mention his name and tell you that he's sending me to you. And uh, a little while later, I get a uh, message back from David, a callback. This is David Shadia. How can I help you? <laughs> Scared the hell out of me. <laughs> uh, and and I, I told him my little spiel again. He said, be in my office tomorrow. One o'clock, I'll give you 30 minutes. Really like, raspy, deep voice, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I go down to his office. I don't have anything except a pair of jeans. I didn't bring a suit with me. I was coming back to Montreal to hang out with my dad. So I walk into his office. I'm led into his office. It was the biggest office I had ever seen in my life. You could <laughs> land a 747. <laughs> okay, in his office. And he's sitting behind this huge desk. That was a replica of the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. And he's sitting on a big Louis XIV chair that resembled the throne. It was an incredible, <laughs> I, I mean, it was incredible. And uh, we sat down. At first, he was uh, a little gruff. And, we, you know, he started telling stories about his experiences representing players and he represented Denny Potvin and Brian Trottier and Billy Smith and the New York Islanders. He represented the number one overall pick in the NHL draft five years in a row. Wow. He had the uh, Calder Trophy winner four or five years in a row. One year in the draft, he represented um, number one to 10 overall, all of them uh, from one to 10. At one point in time between the NHL and the World, World Hockey Association, he had about 140 players at one time in both leagues playing. Huge, huge business, huge agency. And in, around 1981, he completely got out of the agent business and became a very high profile uh, attorney in Montreal, dabbled in sports here and there, 
He represented a couple of uh, baseball players on the Montreal Expos. He continued working with Larry Robinson when he was on the Canadians for a few years, but generally moved away from being an agent. Yeah. So here I am. I walk into his office in 1995 and, and he's giving me 30 minutes, which turned into about four hours. And after four hours of talking and going back and forth and hearing some of his incredible stories, he looked at me and he said, you know what? My biggest regret is getting out of the sports business. I never ah. should have done it. Never should have done it. I don't know what I was thinking. And I've, I've been thinking the last couple of years of possibly getting back into it again. Maybe you and I can do something. And I looked at him and I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, yeah. Here's the deal. We'll be 50-50 partners. I'm not traveling. I've been to Moose Jaw. I've been to Medicine Hat. I'm not traveling. He says, I'm staying here. He says, if you want to be the guy to go out on the road, he says, I have a lot of former clients who are NHL general managers, head coaches, scouts, junior coaches. He says, I think I can open some doors for you and uh, I can help you uh, when you sign some guys and in, in how to negotiate NHL deals. And we can start a partnership on that basis. We shook hands that day and it was the beginning of a remarkable partnership together where we built an agency out of scratch from nothing to in, uh, in, in about four or five years, we had 30 players in the NHL. It's a lot of hard slugging. Well, my first trip, I had tried a murder case, got a verdict, got on a plane the next day, flew to Montreal, rented a car, drove from uh, Montreal to Ottawa. I had called Brian Kilray yeah. who was the uh, head coach of the killer, who was the head coach of the Ottawa 67s. And I said, you know, uh, hi, Mr. Kilray. My name's Alan Walsh. I'm a new agent in the business in LA. I'd love to come to Ottawa and uh, meet with you, present my credentials to you, explain to you my philosophy in representing players. Sure, kid, come on. Do you want to come yeah. to Ottawa? Sure, I'd love to see you. Absolutely. Just come to the office, come to the rink, bang on my door anytime. So I drive to Ottawa. I bang on his door. Come in. Uh, Brian Kilray is there. The legend himself. Uh, uh, hi, Mr. Kilray. My name's Alan Walsh. Who? <laughs> Alan Walsh, I called you last week from LA, a new agent in the business. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, I, we got an agent here in town by the name of Larry Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, every player on my team is represented by Larry Kelly. He's a great agent, great guy. Yeah. Um, you know, thanks for coming by though. <laughs> so then I, I get in my car and I drive from Ottawa to Kingston. Yeah. And the uh, coach GM of the Kingston Frontenacs is Gary Agnew. Okay. And I had called Gary from, from LA with the same thing. I'd like to come to Kingston. And he said, Oh yeah, kid. You know, sure, come on by anytime. Love to see you. Knock on the door of the coach's office in the rink. Come in. Hi, hi Mr. Agnew. Yeah, it's Alan Walsh. Who? Alan <laughs> Walsh, uh, new, new agent. Uh, are you the guy that called last week? I said, yeah. He goes, you know, kid, I get calls from new agents, you know, four or five a week 
you know, asking me to meet with them. You're the first guy to actually ever show up. (laughs) He didn't know uh, you. Yeah. (laughs) And he uh, invited me into his office and we sat down and we had a real nice 30 minute chat. And he said, uh, okay, um, uh, why don't you, uh, are are you staying here to watch the game tonight? And I said, actually, I was going to go to the game in, in, in Belleville tonight. See the moves. You're right. He said, no, no, no. He said, stay here and watch our game. He says, after the game, uh, uh, my coaching staff and I, we always go uh, to this spot for uh, beer and chicken wings and uh, you can come with us tonight. Nice. I said, okay. Okay. Uh, I come to the game and uh, I got there, you know, about an hour before the game, before there was a literally any other people in the rink. And there was a, ticket taker usher there that I came through and I'm wearing a suit and tie. And he looked at me and he goes, you're not from, you're not from uh, these parts, are you? I said, uh, no, I'm from LA. And uh, he's, what are you doing here? And I told him that I'm a, you know, new agent getting uh, started in the business. And he goes, oh, he says, I know a couple of parents on the Kingston Frontenacs uh, here. He says, uh, stay close by. He says, uh, when uh, some of the parents arrive, I know where they congregate. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take you over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was retired, probably about 70 years old, you know, doing this job part time. We're about half hour before game time. You know, warm up is about to start. And he says to me, uh, what's your name again? I said, uh, Alan Walsh. He goes, come here, Al. And he takes me over to a group. He goes, hey, everybody. Uh, this is a new agent in the business, Alan Walsh. Seems like a real nice young man. This is so-and-so, 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 so-and-so. They're all parents of all the players on the team. And I, I chatted with them a little bit about my background, how I got to Kingston, a, a little bit of, a, they laughed a little bit about my story about Ottawa with, with Killer. And, uh, and, and one of the dads of one of the players took me aside and said, uh, you know what? Uh, we we have an agent, and we're we're not very happy. And this is our son's draft year. And uh, would you uh, would you be willing to you know maybe say hello to him after the game? Uh, sure, I would. Mm. So we ended up sitting together watching the game, and uh, here I am sitting with all the parents of the team. Uh, my first OHL game as an agent. And uh, after the game, uh, the player came out of the dressing room and uh, we chatted for a bit, exchanged uh, phone numbers. That night afterwards, I went out for uh, beer and chicken wings with Gary Agnew and his coaching staff, where uh, they proceeded over the course of two hours to tell me how hopeless it was uh, what I was doing and that I was never going to be able to sign any players. And uh, do I know what I'm up against? And the the big agencies that have all the contacts and uh, have uh, stellar client lists. And uh, they spent a good two hours grilling me. And then uh, Gary Agnew pulls the, the bill off the table and puts it down. He goes, here you go, man. For all the great, for all the great advice uh, we gave you, here's the bill. I can't here's believe the, that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and to this day, Gary Agnew has become a dear, dear, dear friend of mine. <laughs> we always joke about that first dinner of chicken wings and beer after the game and how he uh, stuck me with the yeah. bill. On <laughs> Alan. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. from and 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 that player that I chatted with became my first client. His name was uh, Justin Davis, and he was a middle round pick that year of the Washington Capitals. Yeah. And uh, and I'm still in touch with Justin to this day. Bravo. And Bravo. Uh, from from Kingston went to uh, Belleville, Oshawa, doing the same thing. Um, going to midget games, going to junior games, meeting coaches, trying to meet players. I went to. Uh, on that trip uh, down to Niagara Falls and then uh, all the way back in Niagara Falls, signed a couple of players um, on my way back to Kingston. That's when uh, uh, Justin signed with me, met a couple mm. of other players he was friends with, drove back to Montreal, met with David, jumped on a plane, flew back to LA, tried a murder case. Got a verdict, got back on a plane and flew to Saskatoon Mm -hmm. because David had some uh, contacts in Saskatoon, some uh, former uh, players of his who were coaching in the Western Hockey League and drove from uh, Saskatoon to Regina to Fort Capel, all the way back up to Saskatoon, then flew to Calgary, drove from Calgary to Red Deer to Edmonton, back to LA, tried a case, to the point where after doing that for six months, got to the point where it's like, okay, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it properly. Mm -hmm. I walked in one day and resigned from the DA's office and became a full-time agent. That's a heck of a story. I can say what you did in your early years uh, in the DA's office, all the digging, looking for uh, witnesses and so on and so forth, stood you in good stead. Uh, You started beating the bushes in your recruiting of of, uh, players to become uh, their agent. It's uh, a different motivation, but it's the same thing. You're really digging in and trying to find out the details that you need to have to uh, to fill in the blanks in terms of saying this is what this young man needs and uh, just effectively get all the information on him. They didn't know what they were facing when uh, when Mr. Agnew put the bill in front of your face. <laughs> and, and you know what? It's, it's, it's very true. The, my, my time in the DA's office allowed me to acquire a lot of tools yep. and, and great experiences that served me well. Uh, as an agent, but really, I, I was fortunate to, to to be blessed with some amazing mentors, and and David was an incredible mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny one uh, it's one of my favorite stories with David. Remember when we forged our partnership together? He said he wasn't traveling. Yeah. So so it was about two years after we started together. David and I are sitting in Luzhniki Arena in Moscow, uh, waiting for a junior game to start between Russia and uh, Team Canada. And it was minus 30 outside and minus 35 inside. And uh, we're sitting there. And we both have our cup of coffee, which was like motor oil. If you've ever been to Russia, mm-hmm, uh, I have. the coffee there is very strong. And we're sitting there and David's shivering next to me. And he's got this really angry look on his face. And he's shivering and he takes a sip from his coffee. He looks at me and he takes another sip of his coffee. And he's looking straight ahead. And he says, you know something, Walsh? I hate you. <laughs> you got him on the road again. Eh? <laughs> yeah. 
David and I together traveled uh, all through Russia, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Sweden, Finland. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're too hard to resist. <laughs> yeah. he, he got caught up with the enthusiasm and away he went. <laughs> And yeah. that motor oil was not doing it for him. <laughs> yeah. We'd be on a plane together to Helsinki and he'd be talking to himself the whole flight. Why, why am I doing why am I doing this? Uh, why I am do. I doing why, why how how why 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 are we going to Helsinki? What am I doing? Uh, That's good stuff. So tell me though, you didn't have time for family. How did that happen? Oh, Two young kids? Oh. Well, not so young well, now, but I met my wife on an airplane and we were on a flight from Minneapolis to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And uh, my wife at the time was working for Sesame Street Live and she was a promoter okay. and she was promoting shows in uh, auditoriums all over the United States. And she was very much living on the road, um, going in and doing the uh, advertising and the uh, the radio uh, buys and the TV buys to promote mm. a group of shows. So they would blow into town like the circus and they would play for 10 days, two weeks in an auditorium, two shows a day, and then go to another town. And yeah. she would be in in advance laying the groundwork for the show getting all the advertising set up, getting all of the arrangements uh, done, and then also be there when they came into town to manage the event. Mm -hmm. they, they had never gone into Canada before. And then they booked a group of shows in Toronto and the uh, head of the company asked her to go into Toronto to promote the shows. And they were wildly successful. I mean, great media attention and every show was sold out. So she became, in addition to promoting a bunch of shows in the U.S., the de facto Canadian promoter. So from Toronto, they ended up sending her to Saskatoon, Regina, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. So she's on a flight from Minneapolis to Saskatoon. It was Labor Day weekend and Sesame Street Live was playing at the Centennial Auditorium in Saskatoon for 10 days. And I was going in for the Saskatoon Blades training yeah. camp to meet a couple uh. of clients. And we're sitting across from each other and it was hunting season. And literally everybody on the plane was dressed in camouflage. Except for you two. I'm in a suit. I'm in a suit and tie. She's she's well dressed, and we're on a plane full of hunters. And uh, the conversations going on that plane were just hilarious. But we're we're near Saskatoon, and they hand out the customs forms. And I pull out my pen. I fill out my form, and she says to me, "Excuse me, can I borrow your pen?" Sure. I hand her my pen. She fills out the form. She gives me the pen back. We're now standing up after landing, getting off the plane, standing next to each other. And we struck up a conversation. And uh, and as they say, the rest is history. The rest is history. What year was that? That was 1996. Labor Day 96. Labor Day 96. Okay. And, and we've got... been together and we've been together ever since. We got oh. married in 99. And we have two amazing children, 
Um, our, our son is 18, a high school senior. Uh, he's off to American University in Washington, D.C. next year. And our daughter is going into 12th grade. She's finishing 11th now and will be a high school senior next year. Nice. So, in fact, this has been a nice, uh, a nice year for you. Uh, in the sense that you haven't had to travel. I mean, you, you try to make the best of every situation. Each year I've been in the business since my first year representing uh, NHL players, I have flown a minimum of 250,000 air miles a year. And I have not been on a plane now in, in literally one, one year. Yep. It's the very same. In fact, fact more, you can almost, you can, you can double up the flight mileage for me. Uh, since the since the turn of the century, <laughs> wow. so yeah, we've been road warriors, and for me yep. this for me this I mean it, I'm I'm older than you of course, and uh, I kept on saying to myself I've got to wind this down I've got to wind this down, but the opportunity keeps coming up. The number of countries you go to is always interesting, and and the interesting the most interesting part are the people you're meeting and what and why you're going. So it's very hard to wind it down. Well, COVID, I can only thank them on that basis. They uh, told me, Ken, you're not listening. Sit down. (laughs) 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 So, uh, and it was, it was really good. And from the sense that it gave me, I mean, my daughter's right out front. I don't know if she's still there right now. I don't know. She's finished her homework. Uh, But it was really good because I got a chance to connect with her and not have to be rushing off to the airport again. So I'm, I'm from that side, I'm delighted. And especially with your son going off, it has to be a, a, a great opportunity to have reconnected with him. Not reconnected, but I've connected more and being around him more with him. You, you know, that obviously that's a, that's a great joy to have uh, the ability to be, you know, with your whole family, but your, your, you know, especially your kids as they're getting older and, and soon to leave the nest. To, to be around them day to day. But in another sense, you, you know, my son's a high school senior. He has been uh, doing school virtually uh, since mm. uh, last March. And, and I just remember my high school senior year, my last year of high school being a, a wonderful year mm-hmm. and had great fun with my friends and did all the things that you, you should be doing, you know, your last year. And uh, to, to be restricted from seeing a lot of your friends yeah uh, and when you are together you have to sit 10 feet away with a mask on outdoors um it's it hasn't been easy it hasn't been easy and i think that um it it over time it takes a, a real toll and really one of the hardest parts is you know really i i think kids at 17 18 19 years of age are not really concerned about catching COVID right. as they are about catching it and giving it to mom and dad, yep. uh, giving it to grandma, grandpa, yep. and, and being the one to bring it into the home. Yep. And, and uh, my kids have been incredibly careful and responsible in that respect, which I so appreciate. But at the same time, it does make you feel guilty because, you know, but for the fact they're out there concerned about us, mm-hmm. they would be having, you know, a lot more social interaction with their own friends in a year where, you know, soon 
they're all going to be going off into different directions, different cities and different schools. And they're really being robbed of their high school senior year together. And there are a group of kids, good kids that have been together literally since kindergarten. From our perspective, knowing our experiences, it's we look at them, we just think, oh, that, that's so sad uh, that they are missing what we felt were highlights in our high school careers in particular and the importance of the social group and, and that they have had that restricted and that they commit, as you say, they commit to staying free and, and maintaining the distancing and whatnot because of the fact they don't want to bring it home. It's uh, I hope that uh, the, the long or the short of this is that it brings the families closer together. Yep, and, and, and you know, I'm sure when you, you, you put a, a, a family uh, under one roof with uh, out the ability to go anywhere, <laughs> uh, uh, there's good days and bad days. But, exactly, uh, or but, tears but, them apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, you know, that probably is looking back on it uh, a few years into the future. Um, hopefully everyone's life has returned to some level of normalcy. You can look back on the period and, and, and pick out the good parts as well. You know, exactly. And, and, and that will be certainly the highlight is the fact that you got to, you know, spend a lot more quality time with your family than you otherwise uh, would have had. Would have had, yeah. Yep, on, on the other hand, you had to reintroduce yourself to your wife. If you've been doing 250,000 air miles a year, she doesn't, she doesn't necessarily know you as well as you. She might, given that you're coming and going all the time. She does now. She does now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Well, where are we now? Man, we've been going. You're, you're a fantastic storyteller, and it's just so uh, delightful to, li to listen to your stories. And we haven't even gotten into hockey, which I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to say, you didn't get into hockey? Well, actually, that's <laughs> not necessarily what we needed to do or wanted to do. It's about you, your life, and, and the journey you've had, a, a part of it, and a big part of it, hopefully being McGill. And, uh, and the lessons learned from that that you've applied going forward, and you've had lots of them. And as you say, you've had some key mentors as you went along the way. And I can, I can certainly attribute that to the relationship you had with your dad as well. And I'm sure you do the same thing with your, with your kids uh, so that they get the same kind of stories and the same kind of support that you were given. Uh, that becomes a bit of a legacy. And uh, quite frankly, you're the legacy. Yeah. And you know, um, it, it's funny you say that because uh, my, my son played uh, minor hockey here in California, you know, from, uh, from Peewee, um, all the way to uh, um, Midget. And uh, when I would be in town, uh, part of the routine of the day was getting in the car and driving through traffic on the 405 freeway yeah. to the rink. And we'd be in the car for a half hour, 40 minutes together on the way to the rink. And I would be a hockey dad off in the yeah. corner watching him practice. And uh, we'd be in the car together on the, on the way home, uh, you know, get home and have a late family dinner. And, and, you know, he'd start doing his homework at 9 PM. Yeah. But wow. there were some opportunities where, either talking to a client or talking to an NHL general manager. And he was very much 
interested in hockey, knew every player in the league, knew the coaches uh, in many respects, had known, knows the general managers on a personal level, has gone to dinner with them. Uh, my son would come with me. I take him anywhere. Oh, you know, he knew lovely. all the he knew he knew all the clients. So um, one one day in particular, um, I was having a big issue between a client of mine and a and a GM on a team, very high profile client, and uh, in my car with my son taking him to practice, and the GM is calling on the phone, and uh, I answer the phone and uh, on the Bluetooth in the car, we're we're going at it pretty good. And we're, we're going, we're going at it. I'm sure there were a couple of words that uh, at that time, my son had never heard before. Um, <laughs> at, at least I like to think he didn't. And, uh, and, and we, we get off the phone and there was a long silence. And then from the back seat, my son said, wow, dad, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> oh, must have been very impressed. And I bet you I, I wanted to ask you, you know, the difference between being hockey parent in the rink and uh, an uh, agent of the caliber that you are keeping. And also you are uh, your reputation for saying it as as you see it. How did that impact you as a parent? I, I was, <laughs> uh, you know, as a hockey dad, I very early on, I saw firsthand some parents at the peewee level that were completely out of control and they they were reliving their lives through their kids and yes vicariously yep and it was all about um the ice time mm-hmm. and uh you know my son is not on the power play uh, berating a coach i told my son from the earliest time that he started playing hockey that i i love the game if you love the game, that's great. And if you love something else, that's great too. I never pushed him into hockey. He desperately wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And, and as he enjoyed it, I loved trying to be somewhat anonymous. Mm-hmm. I'd uh, flip my, uh, the hood up on my hoodie, go into a corner of the rink somewhere and want to just sit by myself yeah. and watch my son because I enjoyed it, but I never, I literally never spoke to the coaches. I didn't want to. And I would get in the car with my son after a game, whether it was a good game or a bad game, whether he scored or didn't score. And we would talk about a whole bunch of different topics, not about the game, not about what you should have done differently, not about, uh, you know, you need to skate faster, you need to work harder, you need mm-hmm. to, you know, none of that. And, uh, and he never felt any pressure that, that came with being my son, which, which I think allowed him to play the game up into the midget level with joy. And, and he got to the point through, you know, he had broken his wrist Mm. And uh, and had some other interests, and and when it, it came time where he wanted to stop playing, that was great. That was great. I wasn't grooming my son from the earliest age to be a professional hockey player. Yeah, I just wanted him, if he had an interest, to acquire a love of the game, of the game, and and the joys of playing the game, 
and remember the game the way that I remember playing the game. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I don't want to keep you too much more, but there are a couple of things I'd love to ask you. What are the biggest takeaways did you get from your years as you went through McGill and, and your, your law degree learnings that you say, I, I can safely say through the experiences I've had, these are the lessons that I'm applying now. It's sort of give back to the, to the guys who are listening to this, who are, who are going through the same experience right now. That's the first thing I'd like you to answer. You've already answered quite a bit of that by, with respect to saying you're fortunate to have mentors, but be quite frank with you, is, is you're not fortunate being mentors. You, you sought them out, whether you did it intentionally or not. They showed up when you were looking for them, and you may have been looking for them inadvertently, but they showed up. And, but that's a really important lesson that, that many people don't get, that uh, the mentoring that one can have. And certainly from my experience, that's the same thing. I look at it from the other way that I work as best as I can at being a mentor for whoever's looking at me and you've done that. So that's just one of the things, what other things have you learned along the way that you say, you know what, these are the lessons I've learned that have helped me do what I've done and be who I am. Well, I look back on my three years at McGill as being three of the happiest years of my life. I loved every day at McGill. And I think that my time there uh, had a profound impact on the rest of my life. We talk about mentors. There was a professor in the political science department by the name of Professor Waller, who I took several classes with, and he became very much a mentor to me in, in guiding me towards selecting law schools to apply to, mm. guiding me through the process, encouraging me. And, and to this day, I'm still in touch with Professor Waller, who's now retired and living in Florida. Several years ago in Montreal, uh, he and I reconnected and uh, went to lunch together and talked about you know, his memories of me which were, uh, it's always interesting later in life to hear somebody's impressions of you. Mm. I think the biggest lesson that I've learned along the way is that the only ceiling to what you can accomplish is what you put on it yourself. And so many times I've heard people say to me, he can't do that. You'll never be successful doing that. Why even bother? Don't even try. Do you know what a long shot that is? And whether it was, you know, some of the things that I did in the, in the district attorney's office, whether it was starting my own business from scratch in the agent business, I, I think I learned at McGill really for the first time what I was capable of if I really wanted it bad enough. Mm-hmm. And people have asked me along the way, whether it's doing some speaking or in interviews, is there any secret to any success you've had? What is it? And I, I haven't figured it all out myself, but I would say the one pearl of wisdom, if I have it, that I could pass on to other people is if you set your mind to accomplishing something, don't ever stop. There are going to be setbacks along the way. If you allow a setback to totally derail where you want to go, 
you're not going to be successful. And I had plenty of setbacks along the way. For, for years, it felt like I was taking one step forward and then two steps backward. Mm-hmm. For years, it felt like that. And I wasn't any smarter than anybody else starting off in the business. I wasn't. I'm not. The difference between me and perhaps some of the other people out there is I was willing to get on a plane and go anywhere mm-hmm. at any time. Mm-hmm. I was willing to get in my car and drive a thousand kilometers. Mm-hmm. I was willing to go places that people would say, oh yeah, I'll do whatever it takes. But when push came to shove, they weren't really willing to go that extra mile. And I learned, and and this has become somewhat of a saying, 80% of success is just showing up. And for every Brian Kilray who, oh yeah, kid, uh, all my players go to this agent. You got, you know, thanks for coming. (laughs) There's also a Gary Agnew who was very instrumental and helpful after the initial meeting of helping me understand the business and figure out how to set about being successful. There may be people who would have, you know, turned around after Dirt Killer sends you on your way Mm -hmm. and driven back to Montreal and said, this isn't for me. You know, I ended up spending two years um, spending every dollar to my name and then some believing that I was in the process of building something. Great story. And all that from Mr. Agnew for the uh, beer and chicken wings. (laughs) That's what it cost you. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you see yourself going forward? When do you call it a day? And what do you do after you call that a day? If you do. Well, I've I've been asked this question and you start to think about it a little mm. bit even after you've been asked it. I I love what I do. I love this business. I've been representing NHL players now for uh 25 going on 26 years. Yeah. And I love it. And I still am as passionate about it today as I was the day I started. It's a wonderful business. It's a wonderful industry. I've made some incredible friends over the years. I have relationships with clients that where the players and their families have become like my family. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if I ever got to a point where it started to feel like a job and not something that I loved, and had great passion for, I probably would look to do something else or think about reinventing myself for a third act. But mm. I'm nowhere. I'm nowhere near that point. So um, it's not something that I ever really think about. You wake up every day and you're looking forward to what you're going to be doing. Absolutely, every single day. Man, couldn't ask for anything better. Well, it, it'll it'll be nice when. Uh, when, when the world moves beyond COVID mm. and uh, we can start getting on planes again, I do miss the personal interaction with clients. Yeah. You know, you, you can talk on Zoom and, and FaceTime, but it's still not the same of not being the same. present. No, the, the interpersonal connection, the presence of being together, it's, it's missing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I talk with clients and, 
you know, I think they uh, miss being able to sit with me and do the things that, that we do together. And I, I certainly miss the, the interaction mm -hmm. as well. It's just so much easier also to connect and to, to build a, a more personable relationship as well because they get to see you and they get to read much more of your communication besides your voice and your face. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. That's the essence of what it is right yeah. there. Alan, I think we're going to have to call this a, uh, call this a day. You're, you're up in the morning and I've got to look through the, uh, I've got a glass window in front of me or door and my wife has popped up and sort of said, Hey, how much longer are you going to be? <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of said, no, I got, I think maybe 10 more minutes, but this is too good. <laughs> <laughs> It's been an absolute treat to uh, to catch up again. Uh, it, it makes me think, oh my gosh, how did we not stay in touch and uh, and share the travels uh, and the trials and tribulations that we've had? Quite frankly, a lot of your, the, the commentary, especially the traveling and going from place to place, we could share stories about that and probably cross paths in the, uh, well, no, I was a decade before you uh, going across the prairies and whatnot to try and get people such as we mentioned, the, the Babcocks, the Gambles, the, uh, the Reeves and the Iannonis uh, to get them to come to McGill. And uh, so, yes, it, 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 persistence is, is a critical part uh, resilience I'm also hearing from you is another critical part uh, of, of your success and the things that you're going to be passing on, not just to your family, but to the people that you work with and represent. So thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us. And uh, I'm going to be absolutely delighted to share this. I'm going to have to do a little bit of paring down, but I'm, I'm fearing that I'm not going to find any things I want to eliminate. I don't think I will. <laughs> so we may do two parts. That might be the, uh, and we didn't even get into any of the juicy stories, of course, which would be fun to share at some juncture, but uh, maybe that's for the next time. <laughs> that'll, that'll definitely be for the next time. Well, yeah. let, let me say this coach, it's been an absolute joy on my end to reconnect with you and to spend this time talking with you. And I just want to reiterate again, it, it, it's a special opportunity in life to be able to reconnect with someone who had a profound impact on you in your formative years. And, and you did have that uh, profound impact on me. I have so much respect and, and admiration for you as a coach and as someone who cared about his players. And uh, it, it truly was a, a privilege playing for you and, and getting to know you and the time that you spent talking to me is something that uh, I always remembered and uh, gave me uh, great motivation back then. And uh, I just wanna take the opportunity to say thank you and sincerely thank you for everything that you did. And, uh, and I hope uh, this is a new beginning where uh, we can stay in touch and compare uh, war stories uh, <laughs> over beers and some yeah. uh, and chicken wings, uh, great and chicken wings. And I'll some pick great, them up. <laughs> great locales all over the world. Well, I promise to stay in touch with you better than I've done since I left McGill and you too. And I must say that I'm absolutely humbled uh, by your kind, kind words. Thank you so much. Uh, I also suspect that there's an awful lot of people and families, families of sons that you've represented that are saying the same kind of thing to you. So if I had anything to do with that, along with people like your dad, who I'm sure had a much bigger influence than I did, to have, have them have impact on you that you've had impact on the next generation that you've represented, then it makes us all proud. 
to have that kind of legacy going through our experience that we, where we cross paths going through our McGill years and onwards. Thank you. Thank you so much. You got it, coach. Thanks okay. for the time. And uh, it was great to visit with you. It was indeed. Thanks, Alan. I wish you all well and your family as well. All the best. Thanks. Okay. okay. Thanks, man. Take care. All right. There you have it, right from the source, Mr. Alan Walsh, a very successful prosecutor and player agent, well known for speaking his truth. And now you know where he got it from. It all started in Montreal, and a big part of this was him finding his way during his years at McGill. So until the next time, keep your elbows up and your sticks on the ice as you pursue your dreams too. This is Ken Tyler signing off and wishing you success.